Welcome to the first edition of Radical Hope Radio. I'm Liz Feld, the Chief Executive Officer of Radical Hope, and I'm joined today by the organization's co-founders, Pam and Phil Martin, who launched Radical Hope following the tragic loss of their son, Chris, to suicide in 2017. We are committed to breaking the grip of emotional isolation that is killing so many young people. Pam and Phil, welcome. Thank you for leading on this critical work and for joining us today to talk about your personal story. Pam, why don't we start with you? Um, and why don't you tell everybody all about Chris and about his, his life and his journey and how you and Phil arrived at the whole idea of launching Radical Hope. Well, good morning, Liz, and thank you so much for uh, having us today. And uh, we are uh, looking forward to sharing with uh, everyone Chris's story. And so I'll just start by saying that Chris um, was our second child, and um, we adopted Chris when he was about seven weeks old uh, through a very good uh, family priest friend of ours. And so, of course, we were absolutely thrilled, excited beyond belief um, to bring him into our family. And um, when we adopted Chris, he was our second adopted child. Uh, when we adopted Chris, we um, just wanted to love him. You know, we, we knew a little bit about his background, not too much about his background, which is often the case in adoption. Um, but we adopted him, we brought him home and, um, he definitely in retrospect as a baby was, um, highly dysregulated when we brought him home. And, and I didn't even know what that term meant dysregulated until years later. Um, but really had difficult time sleeping for a year and, um, but life went on and, um, I would say throughout his childhood, there was definitely some signs of some issues, some trauma, um, and neither we nor our doctors picked up on them. Um, because Chris was a very social, kind um, child who didn't have any major behavior problems, was a very good student. Uh, and so there would be periods where we would, you know, bring him to doctors. Um, we'd concerns would be raised and um, just, you know, nothing was really ever diagnosed. And so, um, move forward to his high school years and um, his junior year, we really started seeing some behaviors that concerned us. Um, but with all that said, Chris was the most amazing young man. I mean, just full of life, played sports, participated in everything. And um, so I would say I, I tell that part of the story because I think it was difficult to actually get down to the root of what ultimately I believe caused him to die by suicide. Um, and so along the way, I, like I said, junior year, things kind of got very out of control for him and um, decision was made to send Chris to a therapeutic boarding school, which um, was difficult for all of us to do, but we thought necessary. And kind of through that experience, Chris learned a lot about himself. He learned much more about his own adoption story, started doing some work. 
and um, was able to come home from that experience um, feeling a little bit more relief in terms of his story. Um, and then, you know, he came home, uh, he went on to college, but during that time, um, Chris was, you know, diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder, um, which is not necessarily uncommon with adopted children. Um, and so, you know, we, we started working through some of those issues. We did a lot of family therapy. He did a lot of individual therapy, was very, very committed to the process of healing. And um, by the end of his senior year, was ready to go to college. And he went off to Gonzaga uh, University and he was so excited to go and um, again, went to Gonzaga, fit in, made wonderful friends, what became very involved with the school. And, um, but, you know, un- underlying all of that, you know, unbeknownst to us really was still a child who suffered greatly. Um, and so, you know, when he went to college, and I think it's very difficult for kids in college, or at least for Chris, it was to really seek out help and feel comfortable getting help. And, uh, so, you know, in the end, I would say, you know, he, he died by suicide his junior year of college. And I think there were several things that got out of control for him in his life. And he just didn't have an opportunity or he didn't feel he had an opportunity to really, um, share the depth of his pain and anguish with others. Um, and in the end, it ultimately, you know, claimed his life. So um, that's just, a, you know, a brief story of kind of how we, um, you know, his story, his story. And obviously it led us immediately, Phil and I, after his death to starting Radical Hope, Um, And feeling like we really needed to do something because here was a child who was loving, kind, social, had a beautiful girlfriend at the time of his death and wonderful friends, lived in a house at college with wonderful young men and, 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 and he couldn't do it. And we were like, why couldn't he do it? Why couldn't he reach out for help? Why couldn't he even tell us the depth of his pain? and what he was going through. So we just said, we don't want any other family to have to go through this and we have to do something. Um, so I don't know, Liz, if you want to follow up with that, or if you want me to go detail. Well, well, I think we'll talk in a few minutes about that whole, that transition phase for so many young men and women, when they, whether it's going off to high school or, or going off to college and leaving home, has become a, a a real inflection point, and and the statistics back it up that you know what what Chris experienced is not uncommon, and we are going to you know we're going we at Radical Hope are going to address that through some program work that we're doing. But I want to turn to Phil for a minute, and just talk about the focus and the urgency that you brought um, to establishing Radical Hope, and also why you picked the name Radical Hope for the foundation. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Liz. And uh, thanks for doing this. We really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to have this conversation. Um, yeah, the urgency, I think, you know, this is something that for us, it was a it was such a shock. And it was, you know, Pam described, you know, Chris's 
life really well. And, um, you know, all by all, but pretty much all measures, we had some challenges and some things that Chris went through, but by all measures, he was extremely functioning and an incredible young man. And, uh, you know, this shock of him uh, taking his own life was just something that, um, you know, in many ways came as a huge surprise to us. And, uh, you know, we, we reflected on it and, and find, you know, for just for some reason, he didn't have the resilience to, uh, to take on, um, you know, the challenges in his life. And, and the urgency for us was to really say, well, what are we going to, what are we going to do about this? Take this tragedy tragedy and make something positive um, out of it. And, uh, you know, like many people in our same you know, category where where they lose a family member, lose a child. Um, we've spoken to others that have lost children through through suicide, and um, you know, you can you can go two ways. You can you can kind of just be so distraught and be so um, you know in in a state of despair that uh, it's hard to function, or you can pick yourself up and do something about it. And we decided to to take the latter. And uh, formed radical hope to do that, and and really uh, feel we need to make a difference and to make a um, contribution and make a um, so, you know something positive out of uh, Chris's story. Uh, of course, that's what he would want, and that's what um, you know we we want for him. Well, you know, um, there's just this vast waterfront of unmet need in the social services sector, mental health resources on the clinical side, but also the kinds of programs that we know help people connect to each other. And when we first started working together, I guess about 18 months ago, you know, we talked about the different lanes you could go down to try to address the the staggering statistics around suicide and anxiety and depression. And you could have focused on research or policy reform or just raising awareness, but you chose to focus on two things that you saw or identified during Chris's journey um, as real gaps in the whole field. And the first is basically access to premier programs and programs that could be scaled and made available across the country. And secondly, Pam, you talked a lot about how there was sort of no universal standard to evaluate what's working, what's not working, and not a lot of good data to show, you know, what's effective with people. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you you, you got to, you know, the focus that you did and what's driving the work we're doing now. Yes, I'm happy to do that, Liz. Uh, I think that, of course, when Chris passed away, there was so much reflection. And I would say that happens within any family that loses um, a child, even if it isn't through suicide, you, you go back and you're reflecting on their life. And, and so I did a lot of that and I started to feel like, well, what happened along the way, you know, because Chris was very fortunate that he really did have access to good care. But even with that access, it wasn't necessarily the right access. It wasn't necessarily what he really needed at the, cer- at the certain times in his life. And I just, I really felt like there was just this limited view of, of his disease, right? I mean, how, how come someone didn't just come to us and go, he, here's really what he's struggling with. Here's what we, here's what you're supposed to do. Here's kind of this. And, and I, one of the things that came out of it was 
Chris really would have benefited, we all felt, after, from just a peer group of, you know, other kids, other young people that were struggling like him. And in my own community, when he came back from therapeutic boarding school, I couldn't find one. I called so many people and there just wasn't one available. And I thought, wait a minute, what, I mean, how come there isn't one available? All these, all these young people out there struggling and suffering, and there isn't even a community-based program that they can go into and just talk with one another. So that, that was alarming to me, and there was other alarming signs to me. And I thought, no, wait a minute, Chris had access to this. What, if, what about people that don't have access to any of this care? So that kind of planted a seed in me of, first of all, I want universal access. I think, I think we all should have, there should be community-based programs available for all, to all of us, and, and they should really be helpful. And, and that's where we got into the standards, because I think not necessarily every program that's out there qualifies, I believe, to be a really helpful program. I think there's always good intentions but right. not necessarily programs that are really helpful. And so I remember sitting with you, Phil, thinking about, well, well no, we only want to be involved with programs that we know will help young people get through these very difficult, dark times. And so that led us on the journey, you know, Liz, as you know, of developing uh, standards to really evaluate these programs that are available. And then when we find a really great one to scale them, to make sure that everyone has access to really good care. And we also, you know, understood during this process that, you know, there's clearly, um, you know, issues around insurance and, um, you know, just general financial issues. And so we said, okay, we we don't want to make this a financial thing. It, this needs to just be truly, really good, accessible healthcare. And interestingly, people kind of said, mm, that's too lofty. Like, I, you know, that's going to be really difficult to do. And Phil and I just said, no, that's what we want to do. And that's in our hearts of really helping young people. And, and this is absolutely what Chris would want us to do. So um, I don't know, Liz, if you want to talk a little bit about the standards, because um, you were a big part of that. Um, but that's kind of, you know, the story just kept building, I would say. Well, yeah, I will. And um, we've worked for months on, on developing what we are calling now the standards of excellence or radical hope standards of excellence. That really, uh, it's really a, an assessment tool, an assessment vehicle that helps um, any whether it's a funder or a program or an organization um, or someone who's looking to find a program partner, assess the both the viability, uh, the business health, the organizational health, and the program content effectiveness for um, for these for these programs that many of us are looking to support and fund. You know what we all know, and Phil, you can jump in here on this with your business. Is you know it's not enough to have a strong mission and a passionate mission with people who care. You have to have a sustainable business model. You have to have infrastructure and financial integrity and governance all in place in order to execute on your mission. 
And what we know, um, certainly in the foundation sector, is that there are a lot of organizations that, as you just said, Pam, mean well, but they don't have the business chops to get the job done, or they have a wonderful business model, but there's something missing in their program content and their significance in driving something. You know, So our commitment here is to make sure that we have a very simple sort of report card to go in and look at programs we're, we're considering um, investing in ourselves. Uh, that um, helps us measure, you know, whether they can deliver on our mission. And also we're sharing this, we're going to make it universally accessible uh, so that people can use it just to go out and even evaluate themselves. So Phil, why don't you um, add to that? Because I know this was a big commitment of yours, a big priority. Yeah, absolutely, Liz. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, one of the things I'll add is when we first started this, this uh, foundation, Pam and I talked about what we could do. We visited a lot of the top um, you know, mental health programs in the country. And, uh, you know, Pam did a lot of legwork meeting all a whole network of new people in the medical health field and mental health field. And uh, we could have invested in research. We could have done, gone down some of those lines, but we actually found that there's a lot of great research out there, but from a practical pragmatic standpoint, there wasn't the things that you just described to actually get that research and get the care to the people that really need it. And that's, I think where, you know, from a business standpoint, the execution aspects of, of a business are really what make make it happen, and uh, and that's really you know part of what's behind um, what we want to do with Radical Hope is make things happen, and it and it also then kind of leads us to the name, which we really think a radical approach is needed, something different, something new from an implementation standpoint to really get the care needed to you know the young people that need it, and that's going to really be the hope, and that's that's what's going to drive the the hope. Um, you know, for, for those people that need help. And, uh, and that's where, you know, getting back to where the name came from, that's a little bit of where the, where the name came from, but really more of a practical approach to getting things done um, in this field. Well, and, you know, we found with so many of the programs that we were looking at when we first started scouting to see, you know, where we should make investments, um, that, that they self-assess. You know, you go to a lot of these organizations, the websites, and they're lovely and they're compelling and they have great videos. And but then you say, well, but where's the data to back all this up? And it, it sounds so unsexy to ask that, and you, especially when we're talking about some issues that are more um, that are harder to, to gauge or to talk about, really mental health stuff. But really, the fact is, without being able to measure them, we're never going to be able to help the kids like Chris who need it. We've got to be able to look at these organizations with clear eyes and say, this is delivering, here's why it works, and let's make sure we can get it to as many people as possible. Yeah, and most of the assessment of programs out there and help that's out there is, is historically been pretty qualitative. You know, you talk to people and you find people that say this is a good program and it's helped folks and folks that have gone through the program feel better, perhaps. And um, it's very qualitative. And I think we, as you said, like, would like to put a more quantitative um, assessment to all these programs, to these programs that we evaluate and look at. So, Pam, from the very first day you, you and I met, you've been talking about connectivity and the power of connection and um, why it's so important that we start there, really, um, as an organization, to find programs that are going to help people connect. So I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit and then how we landed on Peace Love as our, as our first program partner. Perfect. Yes, I'm happy to do that, Liz. And I think... Uh, so. It's interesting to me, you know, because I think connectivity 
can be for many people, especially in the field of mental health, a buzzword, right? I mean, everyone talks about connectivity, but I look at it differently because I, from our own experience with Chris, you would have looked at Chris and said, Chris is a very, very connected young man. I mean, more connected than most kids. I mean, crazy social, tons of friends, very, very involved, involved in high school, involved in you know sports, college. So on the from the outside, he looked like he was very connected. Had a I always have to say this, Liz, too, had a huge family of support. I come from a very large family, aunts, uncles, cousins, good friends, very, very good, solid friends. And so you would look at him, like I said, and say, well, Chris was a very connected child. And I think that is where sometimes we lose sight of what true connectivity is. So I might qualify it a little differently. And I, I kind of look at connectivity as if you really are connected to a point where you there's no stigma and that you feel completely comfortable sharing your story. And so to me, that's what I would would say is connectivity. And I talked to a doctor at one point in time, like Phil said, we did a ton of research before we even started Radical Hope to get our bearings and just kind of say, how can we begin? And I remember um, one of the doctors saying to me, a highly regarded doctor saying, you know, Pam, most of us never really are able to tell our true story because we're too afraid of judgment or we're too afraid of what the reaction may be. And I thought, well, that has to change. That really needs to change because I think that is a key to, for all of us to heal is to be able to share our stories. And so that really led us to our first partner, which is peace love. It's an expressive arts program out of Rhode Island And uh, they have put together an amazing program, which is allows for, I believe, people to really share their story through art in a very safe environment. And so um, and and their program, you know, works with, you know, they say two to 100. And so it's really for everyone. And so that kind of captures the accessibility piece of it. Um, and it's really enjoyable. And so that to me was so important as our first partner, because I, I, I actually attended a few of the sessions and I felt there was tremendous power in those rooms um, of people being able to share their stories and connect yeah. with one another. And, you know, Phil touched on earlier the, um, the issue of resiliency and building resiliency and how we've seen, you know, with so many young people today who are struggling at the core of this is they're, whether they're lacking some coping skills or they just haven't learned, you know, how to respond to controversy, conflict, um, or adversity. So zeroing in on the high school age and college age kids, um, and without giving too many specifics, Phil, maybe you could talk a little bit about the program that we're working on that we're hoping is going to help address some of that. Well, uh, you're referring to the program at the university program? Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, that one, um, you know, the, the idea I think there is that we provide a, an, a, an entry point for, um, you know, young people into a new environment. So as you mentioned earlier, Liz, you know, going into college is a really um, different environment and there's a lot of change and a lot of uh, things that young people need to be resilient towards. So um, a broad-based program for freshmen entering, entering college is what we're striving for and hope to, uh, to provide some of that coping mechanisms, the resilience, the ability to uh, face those uh, big changes in their environment, their lives, their friends, their social network, all those things uh, through a more formalized program that obviously we could take through our assessment tool and, uh, and, and show some evidence that it actually works and uh, provide that to um, entering freshmen in a college, which is, which is really kind of in the heart of our, uh, our target group of, of young people that we hope to impact. Yeah, and, and it, as Pam said, you know, really big picture, what we're trying to do is help these young, young adults, young men and women connect to each other, connect to themselves, really understand themselves, kind of start to write their own narratives and, and their own you know, paths and also connect to the broader community, you know, get some life skills and that are going to help them with time management and financial literacy and, you know, career development and all these things that I think, frankly, generationally, we all thought, well, gosh, we learned that or our parents taught us that, but there seems to be, um, uh, this generation is suffering from, uh, these diseases of despair at record levels that we've just never seen. And it's terrifying. And the work, Pam, that you and Phil committed to doing from the get-go with Radical Hope is so critical if we're going to get our arms around it. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, Liz. And I think, again, I, I, I always come back to the word, like, we, we want anything we do to, to, to inspire hope. Otherwise, otherwise, I said in the very beginning, I don't want to do it. Like, it absolutely has to inspire hope. Um, and so I, I think this, the program that we're working on for colleges will do that. I think, I think it'll also, Liz, be in some ways exciting for young people. I think it'll, when they enter college and they have a program like this, at least I'm hoping that they will feel like they are taken care of. They're recognized. They're like that, that they come in and we're not, you know, we're not expecting them to be perfect. We're not expecting them just to, you know, slide through their freshman year unscathed. We're going, we know this is hard. We know this is a transition. Right. We want you to do really well. We want you to, we want you to have hope that this is going to be a four year incredible journey for you. We want you to know what's available for you on your campuses to help you get through this time. And so I think there's so many different avenues to help them connect through this program. And so I think it's honoring of them. And that's, to me, again, really important. And that is something that Chris would want. You know, Pam, I was beautifully said, Phil, I, I remember talking with you about a year ago about social media and this idea that so many young people, and this is nothing new, but you know, young people think that they're connected, quote unquote, because they have, you know, 10,000 Facebook friends and they're you know, texting all day with, um, with people they know, you know, from the neighborhood and school and everything else. But, you know, then they arrive at college and that the whole tool of social media uh, has, can be very troublesome. 
And we are looking to address some of that too in this campus program, just talk, you know, to really try to help these kids understand what respectful relationships are, what they mean, and what it really means to connect face to face and in person. And I, I, I know this has been a big uh, passion or, or concern of yours. Yeah, Liz, for, for sure. And, you know, this, the world is much different than when, when we went through all this because, you know, of the, you know, social media is such a big part of young people's lives and it, and it's a big impact in, on what they do every single day. And it can cause, um, you know, them to be isolated, even though you'd think it would be more connected. I mean, we're dealing with a lot of this in the world today with the current COVID crisis, even in the business world. We're connected on video now. We're doing, I spend, you know, many of my days from morning, you know, early morning till evening, you know, on video, you know, back-to-back video calls. And you feel like it's working and you're connected through seeing someone's face in a video call. But we're finding as we've gone through a few months of this, that in reality, there's some things that are still, that are missing in that, in that equation. And uh, if you relate that to social media, if a young person's grown up in the social media world and not having any of that face-to-face connection or, or, or less of that face-to-face connection, um, you can just imagine you know, what that's doing to their ability to, to, as Pam said, to tell their story, to feel comfortable, to feel, to feel safe, to really connect to others. And then it, um, you know, then it percolates through the rest of other parts of their lives, um, poor time management, uh, you know, not sleeping at night and all these, all these things, because it can captivate and, and uh, become intoxicating um, to young folks that don't know how to cope with it and don't know how to, you know, have that resiliency around it. No, it's ironic, isn't it, how, how isolating all of that social media really has proven to be for many, many young people. Right. And very easy, very easy to tell not to tell your authentic story. Like you can, you can cover it up very easily. Um, before we close, Pam, I just want to ask you, you know, what you're hearing now. I know many parents call both of you who, um, who are either going through something similar to, to what you went through with Chris or who are looking for advice and, or for questions. What, what are you hearing from people, that, that, that great commonality among the stories, or is there any particular um, sort of headline out of all of those conversations that you want to share here? Because people- so I would say cons- what I've heard consistently um, from, you know, within a month of Chris dying, you know, we started receiving calls, which we agreed to do because I think it's really important to listen to other people's stories and, and just have tremendous compassion for them. And so we always, Phil and I always agree to do it. And I, I, I'd say two things, Liz, from the very beginning, there has been a, absolute cry for help. Like, what do we do? We have this child who is absolutely struggling. In some cases started out very anxious and then led to they're locked up in their room. They're depressed. They're not eating anymore or they're abusing drugs and alcohol. You know, they're having trouble in school. So it runs the gamut, but always what do we do? We don't know what to do. And so I always found that so interesting, you know, I mean, have you gone to a doctor? We don't even have access to a good psychiatrist, a good psychologist, you know, so that, that there was this, there's always this tremendous disconnect between I have this child that is absolutely struggling. I am so scared for this child. What do we do? And so, of course, Phil and I always try to help as much as we possibly can to fill in those gaps. 
But there is always, Liz, secondly, a tremendous sense of urgency and fear around this. Like, what do I do with my child? I don't know what to do. Um, And, you know, it's easy, easier, I would say, if you have the ability to, you know, step your child into getting an evaluation. But guess what? Getting an evaluation is sometimes thousands of dollars. And can you even get your child into an evaluation? Not, we don't have equitable care across this whole country. You know, we happen to live in Boston where very good mental health care, probably the top in the country, but it's not like that everywhere. So I, I just think we have to continue to help fill in those gaps. And that's, you know, that was another reason that it informed what we wanted to do. Because how can we really universally help everyone? Um, and I just like to say, too, I think for, for anyone listening, um, one of the things that we can all do, Liz, every day is to just truly have compassion for each and every one of our stories. Yes, and we don't know what's going on in other people's lives. Yeah, and that sounds trite, but it's not. It's difficult sometimes, right? It's difficult yeah. for all of us to hear things that we're like, we, we may want to judge it. But don't just try to listen and just show compassion because and understanding as best as we can, because I wish we did more of that. And so I really try to teach people just be as compassionate as you possibly can. And that allows people to tell their story a little more, Liz. Yeah. Well, Pam, that is the perfect. Go ahead, Phil. I was going to say, it comes back to that quote that we often talk about amongst ourselves, the, uh, the quote that says, everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about, so be kind always. Phil, it is so true, and what people look on the outside often belies what's going on on the inside, so... Um, so thank you for sharing that. We, um, we started Radical Hope Radio so that we could share not only what we're doing here at the organization, but really to generate conversation that will help people feel connected by exchanging stories among themselves, offering us advice, and, and also to promote all the good work that's being done out there. There is a lot of focus right now on um, how, how scary these statistics are, and we aim to do something about them. And also to shine a light on the on the good work and the, that is being done and that can be done. So for all of you who are listening, thank you. We hope you'll continue to join us. You can listen to Radical Hope Radio on iTunes, Spotify, Alexa, and on our website, which is RadicalHopeFoundation.org. Pam and Phil, thank you for being here, not just today, but for, for leading this great, um, this great work at Radical Hope. Thank you for having us, Liz. Thanks, Liz. We appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.